welcome everybody. This is the Deleuze and Gattari Quarantine Collectors Reading of Society Against the State by Pierre Clastra. This is a very exciting text for me. I found out about Pierre Clastra just by reading Deleuze and Gattari because his name comes up so much, especially in section three of Anti-Oedipus. I've written a little introduction and then I'm hoping that after I read the introduction, we can have some people weigh in with their initial thoughts about the book. And then from there, I just want to read the first paragraph of the text and then we'll elaborate our impressions after that. So what is a state? Does the political dimension of a society precede the economic dimension of society? Is it possible that Marx was mistaken? Is it the case that Marx's categories of base and superstructure more appropriately indexed to modes of power than modes of production? Furthermore, how are we to understand the emergence of the entity called the state? Can we better understand what a state is in virtue of what stateless societies are said to lack? Furthermore, to what extent might the political organization of a society ramify its metaphysical commitments, or vice versa. In the language of Deleuze and Gattari, the state is also referred to as the despotic machine. It has found expression in numerous forms, principalities, kingdoms, liberal democracies, and Soviet state capitalism, to name but a few. A defining characteristic of the state is its overcoding of the primitive society. Primitive society and the network of alliances affiliations, which makes it cohesive, is rendered subject to a mode of force which entails violence, subjugation, the institution of law, and specific cultural norms. These forces are called overcoding because the semblances of previous alliances and affiliations often both subsist and evolve in reaction to top-down power. The state, and this is a quote from Anti-Oedipus, the state inaugurates the great movement of deterritorialization that subordinates all the primitive affiliations to the despotic machine. At this time, I'm hoping that some of the listeners who'd like to join in uh, could register some of their initial opinions or impressions about this text. I recently only found out about him, class trick. Uh, I haven't read much of him, only a couple of essays from this book, and uh, in particular, uh, thought to this one we're going to go over today. I don't know, uh, it was really, at times insightful, at times uh, have its, uh, I think it has its uh, lacks, <laughs> in a way, if I could say that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, I hope we can elaborate later on that. I think we talked about this, but uh, sure, we need to talk about it more. Okay, sure. Uh, Doug, did you want to say something too? Um, yeah, I was remembering something that I read in um, Eugene Holland's uh, kind of guide to Anti-Oedipus last night, talking about Deleuze and Guattari, their view on uh, scarcity and how basically it's always been a uh, kind of fabrication by uh, you know the the state or whatever powers that be uh, in a fo- social formation, um, and so yeah, I'm interested to see how that view might clash with. Uh, other authors and try to understand what they could mean by that better. I won't say much. I just wanted to echo that there was definitely some aspects which I think showed its age maybe slightly, but I know he's playing with concepts of savage and he's trying to unturn, upturn things. I did like, and I guess this is what will be connected to Deleuze, is some of the discussions of the the artificiality of separating categories of political economy from social life and what we can understand from societies that at least in his model we understand they're they're all sort of connected and there's no outside to it that it's all uh 
part of the same sort of social structure. Um, I could see in our previous discussion just now about the review of chapter one there and anti-Oedipus, it was helpful to link back to some of that. So basically how Deleuze and Gattari attempt to collapse the distinction between interior and exterior um, yeah. at so many levels when it comes to law, society, and, and so forth. Yeah, that's a good notice, I think, for this uh, for this text, too. It might be interesting to talk about uh, the way this, this essay attempts to kind of flip our understanding of, like, linear socioeconomic development and how deeply rooted uh, that is, particularly... Uh, in kind of Western understandings of like capitalist development. And obviously I agree with the issues of, of age. Those those issues exist also in anti-Oedipus and even in Foucault. So I think the, those those points of criticism are valid. But I, I think they're, even just in the first page, there's an element here that is kind of interestingly Nietzschean. Uh, I think of like the transvaluation of trying to uproot our understanding of of uh, intellectual and, and cultural development, things like that. So. What I really appreciate about this analysis, too, is that it provides us with concrete examples, right? Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. we're bringing in anthropological research, and it does challenge the the sort of fundamental Marxist view for anybody who is committed to a, as a leftist analysis of capitalism. I like having the foundation of my understanding of capitalism shaken in the way that this essay did it to me when I first read it. Uh, shaken in terms of uh, linearity or could you Yeah, the, the linearity aspect and mm -hmm. also, um, and, and we can get to this later, how um, history may not be shaped by economic determinism as much as demographic determinism. Yeah, I think that's um, one of the main theses of the essay, along with uh, juxtaposing the economic versus political. Yeah, that's what told me with my understanding of uh, Deleuze's uh, kind of ontology of problems and uh, the production of the solutions to them being a yeah very ecological kind of demographically informed process. Cool. I, th I think I liked a lot about the, um, the essay, actually. Um, one of the things I found interesting was the this, this sort of demographic idea, um, because you find this uh, even earlier with uh, Rousseau as well. Uh, Rousseau makes it really, really central to his uh, political uh, thinking that um, the demographics of any given society are really, really important in, in, in the in considerations of, sort of the ideal uh, political structure that they that they should uh, adopt and work towards. Um, he talks about you know the Swiss cantons and smaller states like that, and he, he you know he he openly says I think that the ideal state is something like the sort of the, the Swiss cantons precisely because of its sort of limited uh, size, um, and for some of the reasons I think that that are brought up in this this essay as well. All right, maybe at this time we can have somebody volunteer. Matt, um, your mic sounds amazing. <laughs> right now, uh, do you? And I, one. Yeah, I was trying to get my fancy schmancy mic set up here, but it seems to be cutting out. Do you have the text at the ready? Uh, yeah, I've got it in front of me a PDF. Yeah. Would you be able to read it with that sexy microphone? The the first paragraph. <laughs> the accent, okay. Primitive societies are societies without a state. Uh, this factual judgment, accurate in itself, actually hides an opinion, a value judgment that immediately throws doubt on the possibility of constituting political anthropology as a strict science. What the statement says, in fact, is that primitive societies are missing something, the state that is essential to them, 
as it is to any other society, our own for instance. Consequently, those societies are incomplete. They are not quite true societies. They're not civilized. Their existence continues to suffer the painful experience of a lack, the lack of a state, which try as they may, they will never make up. Um, and I, I, this is the only point, and I, I think it's a, it's a strange one because um, everything after this I found really, really interesting and quite compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, 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 it straightforwardly didn't strike me that, um, that this was quite true. I mean, maybe maybe this is sort of the maybe the fundamental point is about defining them in terms of lack. Um, it's society minus the state, um, and so we're already implicitly judging them by the standards of our own society is, is that do you guys think that's basically what what the idea of is here i'd say the first paragraph or two the, the first point he makes here is essentially the one of presuppositions the, the one of uh, actually certain positions of thought that are already predetermined by our being in a state society i think if i may interject here for just a moment please um, yeah yep. Um, on the version I have on my computer right now, page 204, um, it, at the bottom of the page 204 is where he starts talking about precisely why the state cannot take hold, that it's not just unlikely, it is impossible with how primitive society is structured. And the way he characterizes this is because primitive society, the first society of abundance, leaves no room for the desire for overabundance. And to me, this is very interesting because it's basically flipping that paradigm of lack on its head uh, instead of kind yeah. of societies being lacking it's because they have they already have what they need they have enough there is no lack it's the other way around in a way if that mm. makes sense mm. yeah, yeah i think that was I, that was one of my favorite ideas as well um brought up in this essay because it's the same, you find the same thing in the passages of anti-edipus that we, we've, all, we've all been reading right Deleuze and Gattari sort of insist that lack is essentially you know to, to use another terminology that grafted on afterwards by, by I mean, sort of from the social field it's not built into it as someone like Lacan would say um, and this is sort of the same idea right that in our society lack's grafted on and so we then assume that every other society every sort of way of thinking mode of thinking whatever operates under the same principle you know he's saying this, this just isn't just isn't true right I'd like to actually bring up a more I think it's kind of a banal point in a way but I think it's important when it comes to I don't know how many of you are teachers out there or have had to teach history when we talk about ethnocentrism I think Clostra gives us a way to talk about that and what what I think is so interesting uh, about this text is we see an author trying so hard to get away from framing uh, their analysis of, of you know so-called primitive societies, trying to get outside of a European global north perspective. Like they can't escape it, right? Because on page two hundred, he he has to fall back on we are still living increasingly so. Yeah, uh, if one may put it uh, in such a way, within the prolongation of the second acceleration, the industrial revolution of the 19th century. So even in these analyses, he can't escape kind of framing uh, these discussions around kind of Western histories uh, and histories of, of, of in industrial development and things like that. So I just found it kind of such an interesting tightrope kind of walk that he had to take. Yeah, I want to say that there's something really interesting about this kind of essay where on the one hand, you can tell there's a really important intervention being made and there's a lot of 
philosophical insight to the kinds of arguments he's trying to make. But then at the same time, there's this kind of, it makes me think a lot about this piece that I'll send to the group if you guys haven't uh, read it before, but there's a great piece by David Graeber that he does with another anthropologist where he basically is kind of taking on a lot of the themes that are discussed here. And at first when I was reading it, I was really concerned that he was kind of taking on the anthropocentrism and the historical like imperialism of the discipline, but then falling into the kind of noble savage myths. But he does actually qualify it quite a bit, and he does, you know, he, he delves into ways that our understanding of, you know, linear history of, oh, the tribe turns into this, turns into this. He does complicate that a little bit, but I sometimes wonder if, I guess what comes up in the Graeber piece is he talks about there is this sort of binary idea of like nomadic subsistence life or highly advanced uh, social formations in cities and state-like entities. And Graeber kind of makes an interesting intervention where he's talking about what is the actual, you know, later on, obviously more recent evidence that we have of kind of like seasonal societies and how they shift between social formations at different times. So like in different you know, times of year having more sedentary and at other times having more nomadic existences. But he has a great line in that piece where he says, uh, I can't remember the exact tribes that he's citing, but he's like, these tribes aren't windows into history. You know, they're living current existing things that have been affected by the industrial revolution, by colonialism, by all these things. So it's, it's a funny tightrope to walk where he's saying we can't be ethnocentric and we can't look at these things as linear time. However, let's use these contemporary existing tribes to try and understand our own origins, you know, and I, I know he's trying his best here, but I feel like he doesn't quite escape that. Uh, yeah. And a little bit. What, what it reminds me of is when I first started reading Foucault and all of the various people that, that right kind of in his place, it reminds me of Edward Said's uh, Orientalism and, and the mm. critique of, of anthropological and sociological academia there. I do think this text does a pretty good job of doing its best to avoid that critique, though. I don't, I don't want to, you know, invoke Saeed, like... Uh, yeah, with, I, I was just going to say that it, um, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't avoid, avoid all the issues, but um, I, I, I felt, at least reading it, the sort of the impression that I got, the feeling I got, is that when he, especially at least in terms of the terminology that he uses, you know, when he uses sort of the word primitive and so on, my, my sort of impression was that... Um, he might as well have been putting, you know, quotation marks around it each time. He's sort of playing oh. on this idea rather than either explicitly or implicitly endorsing it. I think you're probably right that there are sort of slightly deeper issues about whether whether he's able to escape from that kind of ethnocentrism. I, I think I just, uh, at least in terms of the terminology, um, at least on that level, I think, you know, he doesn't, you know, doesn't put quotation marks around it every time, these sort of words, these sort of phrases, but... Um, uh, that was sort of the impression I got reading it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and, great. Uh, just to push back a bit, I think it was Will who said uh, that on a certain, certain page, Class J highlights that he really cannot distance himself from this ethnocentric uh, point of view as much as he would like to or whatever. And uh, Jean Baudria actually makes a similar, top, um, similar point uh, while discussing photography, he says that uh, no tribe virtually now cannot be found with without an anthropologist who is just trying to take these provocative but also real images which in the same time while trying to produce this reality essentially escape it mm. and this is a lot this has a lot to do with uh, his other work with simulacra and reality simulated reality etc with anyone who's familiar with it would really be a great point
I think it is interesting. Sorry. Well, one of the things I'd like to ask is the ethnocentrism. Is it possible to escape it? Maybe not in an epistemological sense, but you could certainly try. The question is uh, whether we can or not. I'm just saying that no matter how careful you are to produce a non-ethnocentric representation, you know, someone else is going to come along and say that's ethnocentric. Yeah, I think the conversations like this relating particularly to sociology and radical anthropology like this, because like I, I, I'm pretty sure there was nothing else being published quite like this. I mean, I think the way to reconcile that is just to recognize that, yes, there are different ethnocentric yeah. views and you therefore have to communicate and reconcile between those. Yeah, and I think you have like the epistemological framework discussions first, and then you accept those limitations and move forward. Um, so it's like basically, they, like you think the eth, like everything you do comes from the ethnocentricity because that's how it is now. So like moving out of it, it's always connected, but it's more like it like blooms out of it and then bubbles out like a way. You know what I'm saying? Like it becomes its own new thing, and we have to do that through like these discussions. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of on the same page with, with Iron Man. I, I think there is this sort of like epistemological limitation that we can never escape. But I think in virtue of attempting to transform it, we do make some headway. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And we won't yeah. know we've gotten all the way until we're there. And it'll be yeah. there. I'm on board with that. Yeah, I think I think it's better to just acknowledge acknowledge some of the you know obvious limitations and then just move on and, and uh, see what he has to say on his own terms. I think that's the case with every anthropological work, though, particularly from this era. Um, I think that's the best way to do it is to just establish like the ground epistemologically that we're standing on and then move kind of forward with the analysis. Um, if you guys don't mind, I'm actually going to leap pretty far ahead in the book. I have a, a paragraph kind of highlighted here on page 198, and I have some questions associated with that. This paragraph seems to me to encapsulate a lot of political claims that that he has, but are spread throughout the rest of the text. And I'm thinking of the paragraph that begins with when. So it says, when in primitive society, the economic dynamic lends itself to definition as a distinct and autonomous domain. When the activity of production becomes alienated, accountable labor levied by men who will enjoy the fruits of that labor, what has come to pass is that society has been divided into rulers and ruled masters and subjects. It has ceased to exercise the thing that will be its ruin, power and the respect for power. Society's major division, the division that is the basis for all others, including no doubt the division of labor, is the new, and I have this underlined, the new vertical ordering of things between a base and a summit. And I'm thinking here that he has base and superstructure in mind. It is a great political cleavage between those who hold force, be it military or religious, and those subject to that force. The political relation of power precedes and founds the economic relation of exploitation. Pretty big claim. Uh, Alienation is political before it is economic. Another huge claim. Power precedes labor. Another huge claim. Uh, The economic derives from the political. The emergence of the state determines the advent of classes. So I was hoping to put a discussion uh, on the basis of um, what would be the character of a politics that derives from a reading of anthropology in this way. Clearly, these are claims that 
fall heavily into the domain of political philosophy. Do we agree, disagree? Where do we stand with, with, with Clastries on these points? I have some thoughts, but I'm happy to let other people go for uh, go first because I think I've been talking a little bit already. So um, I'll give you... Yeah, but give... that mic is so sexy. Just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I paid like uh, £7 for this on Amazon like years ago. Sure? Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's just a pair well, of earphones with a mic built in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in a way, I I think I'm sort of anticipating something um, that should probably come later, but it's about uh, power. I mean, it's something we were talking about um, in one of the channels earlier, and I was sort of mulling this over. I, I was just sitting outside, and I was having, uh, having a cigarette and just thinking about this, and it strikes me that it's almost as if he overplays his hand um, unnecessarily mm. um, because he pushes himself to the point where... Uh, I don't know. I think it's partly here, and I'm just reading elsewhere. So it might have been elsewhere, but um, oh no, it was, it was another paper. It was the interviews with him. Um, he, he basically denies. He completely, completely denies uh, Foucault's analysis of power. The power is in some sense everywhere, and within us, between us, and so on. Mm. Um, power exists insofar as the state exists, right? Mm, right. Um, and it, it, it struck me that he didn't really need to go that far to make the point that he. Uh, wanted to make because it's clearly coming from an anarchist perspective which is absolutely fine um, but you don't need to say that power um, only derives from uh, you know state authority and vertical class relations or whatever um, in order to in order to say that you know all things considered we're you know much better off much freer or whatever much freer much happier without the state you don't need to extend it that far how does this uh, work with the latter part of the the, the later part of the essay, when um, he goes in detail about the chiefs and uh, about the not one? How do Are you, you talking about this Eurozine uh, article? Sorry, I was late. No, we're uh, talking about the clusters. Oh. I, I sent that link as a. Oh, but uh, Iron Man was referring to the the interview that clusters did. Correct. Yeah, so I, I found it now. Um, I was just searching for my PDFs. Um, it, it was published as a book, actually, by Semiotext. Um, it's, it, the whole thing is essentially an interview with uh, Class Dress. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'm on the blurb. Just give me a moment. Uh, Class Dress isn't refuting, he is asserting. What does he assert? That a society against the state does not contain bits of power as such or power sequences susceptible of becoming an embryonic state power. In doing so, he is combating what I would call the prevailing Foucaultism. Michel Foucault's thesis about the existence of micropowers has led people to see power everywhere, wrongly so. What, what are you reading from? Uh, so that's, separate. That's, that's from the blurb um, from a, a separate text. It's, a, it's um, yeah. an interview with uh, with Clastre. I think it was post post published. Do you, do you know um, who wrote that, or just some? Uh, just give me one moment. <laughs> just some random guy. Yeah, because yeah. because I'm interested about that because um, it seems it seems to me that he would argue that power, in some sense, has to exist before the state because power is how he sees the emergence of the state happening. So so at least so at what a trivial level, storage power of value as power. But, um, I think that the point he's trying to make is that um, power and the state arise at the same moment, and if it's the power that arises, then immediately it's the state. And even though he had no point in this essay, and I think this is uh, one of the main lacks I was talking about in the beginning, is that he doesn't really give uh, a proper genealogy of the state. He just poses the question and maybe gives some options, but at the end he talks about some preachers, right, 
and uh, where the preachers yeah. that uh, it might not be the chiefs but, the, but rather the preachers right and uh, i think that the state arises as the power relation arises between this is people. actually yeah this is something that um murray bookchin if any of you have heard of him argues yeah, also yeah, that, him, yeah. that um I, th I think it was bookchin who said this that um like early like powerful authoritarian figures actually emerged from like um like medicine men and stuff not actually as like chieftains and <laughs> which is sort of along these lines yeah this is interesting because this is sort of connected to our discussion why i think it's not about like trying to catch him out for you know words that he used or things like that there's a deeper argument that he's making that on the one hand i think is super interesting about reversing our understanding it's not that there's just a market and then people exist in it and get exploited that market has to be constituted by something all that stuff is very interesting but he kind of i do agree with andrew that he does kind of fizzle out at the end and it's related to this problem of it, he's trying not to have a linear view of history and he's trying to respond to all these things but he ends up with this kind of to me a fairly weak argument about demographics which is you know he makes an interesting point where he says different things happen in human history but the agricultural revolution on its own didn't create x y and z and i, I think that's true current anthropologists would probably agree that it doesn't it's not yeah. a linear line that sedentary societies necessarily are this and then hunter no gatherer bands are more egalitarian that's yeah. all great but he, mm -hmm. i do think he gets stuck on this thing of, de of demographics as sort of that rousseauian thing of like there is a an inherent yeah. subjective or qualitative shift when society is a certain size it does make sense like it's common sense it does sound like it makes sense but i guess the issue i have is and that's why i linked the graber piece is that there is evidence of fairly large social formations quite early on in human history that didn't lead to that kind of uh as he would understand it, I think authoritarian power. So it's sort of like he's he's trying, yeah, he's struggling with specifics. He uses the examples of the chieftains, which I thought were very interesting. But then I also thought, well, if you read about the history of Spanish colonialism, there's for every tribe that decided not to ally with the Spanish, there were a bunch that got completely, you know, co-opted by them. So it's 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 hard. He's trying to create universal categories. He's not. He doesn't want to. But then he's using these examples for kind of larger conclusions. So it, it's it's a it's definitely a muddled, it's brilliant in many ways, but it's a muddled conclusion, I think. Yeah. Um, Could you there's something that I wanted to interject about. Uh, like I tried to do a, a very charitable reading of him because I think I agree with a lot of you here that it does fizzle out at the end. So the basic argument, the strong part of the argument, as I see it, is that as population densities increase, it creates the conditions by which the state can emerge. But in conjunction with that, jumping ahead to, to the last two pages there where they start talking about the, the voices of the of the prophets, I connect that to that plateau and a thousand plateaus, the postulate of linguistics, where they start talking about order words. Mm. And it seems to me yes. that an argument can be made that given a certain set of social conditions, the nature of speech changes and at, at speech and writing that yes. is. That's a great point. Particularly, yeah. So what I think um, here's an argument that I can make, just off like sort of an armchair Clastres <laughs> argument motivated by Deleuze and Gattari, is that given certain a certain set of social conditions, the theoretical labor that's conducted in in a society, be it by shamans or medicine men, allows them to say the kinds of things that would then institute or inaugurate a new form of power that would allow chieftains who had very little power at one time 
to then rise to power. And I like I don't know if any of you have read that story by Jack London, um, The Strength of the Strong, but it's kind of like a Hobbesian sort of like how, how did society form sort of story. And, and it goes exactly by this model. So I, that's sort of a connection that I made. Is it possible that a certain manner of speaking or writing emerging in conjunction with population density would create the conditions by which political power could be transformed into the power of a state? That's really so um, one of the things I did, um, whenever I encounter a new author, I always try to um, have a read through things like the Wikipedia page just to get a sort of a sense of uh, their trajectory, their lives, whatever. <clears throat> and I'm, I, I, I got reading a little bit about the the, the last book that he published, just uh, well, posthumously actually, um, Archaeology of Violence. And I think the answer seems to, for him in this, in, you know, the question we're raising here about how how states therefore form and given this position here, um, it sounds like his answer is essentially that these, uh, you know, sort of almost nomadic tribes going to war with each other. He, he sees it as uh, essentially an attempt to precisely to limit the power of any one tribal leader or population, precisely in order to prevent a state from arising. That seems to be just like I got from what I read. And I guess you could sort of work backwards from that and say that the emergence of a state might simply be a, a, a failure to uh, to contain that, right? Yeah. Mm. So, so somebody mentioned earlier David Graeber. I think one one important ob- observations that David Graeber has made is um, he has the thesis that honor is excess dignity, which I think is a really good way of summarizing a lot of these arguments. You you obtain power if you have an excess of individual moment based dignifying actions. So Misha is saying that he would like to return to the epistemology part. Earlier in this um, discussion, you were dis- mm-hmm. some folks here were discussing the epistemology of his argument and whether it's possible to break free of an ethnocentric lens. What I'm interested in is how he is structuring his argument. I've only read one essay, and it's the one we're focusing on right now, but the way it looks like it seems as if he's like looking at specific examples that he finds in different um, Amer- American, Native American, or Indigenous societies. And as these things accumulate, he's trying to um, es- like establish a new way of looking at um, these societies and their um, emergence of a state. No, I think you're. I think you're right. That's that is what he's doing. And uh, especially when it comes to the labor time or the yeah, yeah. sufficient time that's used for a certain tribe, he really juxtaposes many of these tribes and uh, makes one crucial. Point, I guess, that they all work approximately three to five hours and that they work only in certain periods of the year, every what year, I don't know, whatever. But they essentially work less, much, much less, and that this is uh, the stance for almost all tribes, if not four hours. Every. Yeah. Right. I was going to say, I think that's one of the, that is one of the useful observations is that he kind of, he doesn't just say, oh, they're not just subsistence societies, we have to value what they do. He kind of is making the argument that the reason that we even conceive of what they're doing as impossible is because we operate from a position of alienation where the power and the resources and the extraction is so extreme that it isn't possible for us to just subsist and make our lives function. So to us, 
there's an idea that in order to do that, you would have to dedicate all of your life all the time constantly to doing it. Yeah, like, like, well, no, actually, they have a completely different relationship with the concept of labor, with leisure, and they're able to subsist. And the only reason they wouldn't be able to subsist is from, you know, another event coming into the social space and redistributing things and taking people out of their context. You know, I think that's sort of there's like an allegory of capital there, which I think is really useful for getting us out of the, I think what he's trying to argue against this classical sort of Marxist thing of we exist in society and we just need to sort of change who's in charge of it or make it better. And he's sort of saying there's something intrinsic to society itself, the way we understand it, that alienates and makes it impossible for us to exist in this idyllic way. And then I yeah, think, yeah, I think, there are the other. But I think one of the, the important things that we're kind of glossing over is the, um, the notion of debt in the institution yeah. of debt on the page is, is not as developed as I think it should be. And um, as the, for those of us who are in the anti-Oedipus reading group, that's going to be a huge part of, of chapter three yeah, of, and of, of the work. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I think particularly when it comes to, to Deleuze and Guattari's invocation of like uh, Moss and uh, the concept of, of the gift and right. uh, that when we, when they start taking a look at kind of the the formation of Oedipus, and I'll put that like in quotations or under erasure or whatever, um, uh, I think that's speaking through this text, or at least because that's where my background was coming into it today. Uh, that's what I saw reflected here, and I think it's what allowed for me to get a deeper appreciation of that, even if it's not explicitly stated here. Sure. And actually, um, Nietzsche, I would say, is even precedes Moss in, in some sense. I, I actually excerpted a piece of an essay by, by Deleuze himself called To Have Done With Judgment. I'm not sure if anybody has come across that. Mm -hmm. It's in the essays Clinical and Critical. I highly recommend it. And I just want to read a short paragraph from it. He says, it was Nietzsche who was able to lay bare the conditions of judgment, the consciousness being in debt to the deity. The adventure of debt, as it becomes infinite, is thus unpayable. Man does not appeal to judgment. He judges and is judgeable only to the extent that his existence is subject to an infinite debt. The infinity of debt and the immortality of existence each depend on the other and together constitute the doctrine of judgment. And what's interesting is, and, and another thing that I think could be elaborated better within this essay is, with the emergence of the state, we have in the, the coming into being the entity of law. And then, of course, this, this notion of judgment and that the terror under debt is also instituted as well. Being bound to a state, we are forever in debt to the state, whether that's in the form of taxes or into the form of some other obligation, you know, big or small. That's another piece of the Colostre's puzzle here that's kind of functioning in the background of our discussion, but I'd like to talk about it a little bit more. If have you read David Graeber's book on debt? I have read part of it. I think he analyzes the same passage from Nietzsche, but it's really interesting the work David Graeber does because he basically concludes that most of the religions we know about are are directly in response to what you what you articulated, the idea that we're in debt to the state. Right. Um, Graeber actually says that religions exist as a way of formulating debt in a way that isn't just justifying the state. But he, David Graver actually says we should try to live in a way that isn't based on debt and economic relationships, which is, I think, interesting. Sure, I'm down for that. And um, Derrida actually, in his book, Spectres of Marx, actually mm -hmm. a lot deals a lot with debt. But uh, one important point, which made me uh, 
remember this uh, book was his reproach to this linearity or the linear view of history that Fukuyama employs as well in his book. I'm curious, what are the political takeaways or even philosophical takeaways from this book in view of what's happening in the world right now? Uh, I mean, imagine living in a quote-unquote primitive pre-modern society and um, not having the, the state apparatus and then experiencing coronavirus, for example. It seems to me, the reason I mention this, it seems to me that Kloster is, is making an indictment of, of life under the state. And mm-hmm. I think he presupposes at some level that in line with anarchism, we can find some sense of liberation outside of the state. But I'm curious mm-hmm. if there's anything within his argument that has implications for progressive politics or radical politics moving forward in the year 2020. I think there is. I think, yeah, I think it's a very interesting question that, um, you know, the way you framed it in terms of us trying to say, what if we were the primitive state? So, well, what if we take ourselves in this position, then imagine people from the future looking back on us and how might they have a difference in their society that we don't have right now? And what does that mean we kind of aren't lacking that we might not be seeing right now? I just wanted to say that I think I think it's a really interesting question, particularly where you, you put it, Craig, when you, you talk about um, you know, coronavirus, and you know, because uh, in Foucault's work, um, you know, the idea of power is obviously much more neutral, um, and it's simultaneously uh, productive and repressive, or not simultaneously, it has potential to be either. It's in itself, it's neutral, right? Um, and so you might think that uh, potentially one of the uh, productive forms of power. Um, is in producing a state of affairs or a framework as such that um, enables a uh, a given community to um, to to cope with something uh, a virus like this. Um, I think towards the end of um, Foucault's life, when he talks about biopolitics, um, he starts couching it in more sort of evaluative terms, where he starts talking about better or worse forms or approaches to it. And I think Agamben takes that up later as well. So this is kind of sort of the anarchist versus Foucauldian. Uh, point in a nutshell, right? So the anarchist is going to say that power isn't everywhere. It is, you know, fundamentally derived from the state and it's bad. Um, and, and the sort of Foucauldian is going to say, no, it, it, it's everywhere right there from the start. And it's neither good or bad inherently, but has potential to be either. I was wondering if anybody's familiar enough with Foucault to say what kind of power structures there would be in an egalitarian stateless society. I mean, He's, somebody said you can't really dissolve power, but what kind of power would there be? Yeah, so so he he would be highly critical of the assertion that there could be, and he makes this clear in his his debate with with Noam Chomsky, yeah, um, and tries to kind of pull out the the conventional liberal in Noam Chomsky, and I think he does a pretty good job. <laughs> Of it, where where he's hypercritical of this idea of kind of societies without power dynamics. I struggled with this text, particularly on page one ninety eight, and I thought, particularly the fact that uh, that the leader of this discussion today, Craig, brought brought it out initially with with the discussion about power presupposing economics. There's kind of this huge schism between early Foucault on power and later Foucault on ethics. But then even later Foucault, we see kind of a return to that in his lectures that who brought up Foucault's later lectures on biopolitics? I think that was me, yeah. And yeah, I think think that that the question about, well, what about coronavirus is a good one. Um, And what it actually brings to my mind is, I'm going to probably speak someone who 
like actual like Foucault scholars won't like too much, Virilio and his concept of the mm. accident, that, that particularly with coronavirus, a lot of what we are seeing are actually results of development. Um, what I'm thinking yeah. of are, are avenues of travel, of, of mass communication, mass travel, and transit exactly. um, that, that allow for the spread of such a pathogen in such a remarkable way. I, I think coronavirus is unique to the world we live in, to this hyper-connected, globalized world. Yeah, I was going to say that in response to that question that I think rather than look at it from the perspective of what if we were a primitive society and what would that be like? I think it's more interesting to, to think of it in that exact way of like connecting to his claustro's understanding of how power gets constituted and what makes societies on a mass scale demographically possible and all those questions like our current condition. I mean, if anything, on a very basic level. The, the coronavirus has completely blown open what is, I think, obvious to a lot of critics of capital and capitalism, that the economies of scale and the way, you know, just-in-time production and all these things function is there's an appearance of abundance and of, you know, first world standards and all these things that we have access to. But actually, we're totally alienated from all these different processes to the point where in, in a matter of a week or two, a few weeks, you know, we're al almost all facets of our basic daily lives have been very difficult to, you know, make happen. It's food from food to, you know, sanitation and medicine and all these other things. And it's interesting because I think in your question, you were saying, you know, is it this tenable, this idea of this kind of anarchistic state of nature where you wouldn't have a state, but even to defend his point of view, which I do take issue with, but I think he would probably say, again, that there are, our current experience of lack or inequality or violence is itself a result of the state of things, of the order of things as we live them, and that it wouldn't have been possible you know, a society which was perpetually pursuing endless growth and depletion of fossil fuels and, you know, a society that literally can't exist in the in this world system in perpetuity. You want to tie something you're saying to something I mentioned uh, pretty close to the beginning. Uh, you're talking about abundance and, and the appearance of it and how the coronavirus is kind of laid bare. Well, this is, you know, this is a production, right? So I think that's interesting is that it is... Uh, the the point I brought up at the beginning was how, at least according to uh, Eugene Holland, uh, Deleuze and Guattari would say that uh, scarcity is kind of a fabrication by the state or the ruling class. Scarcity had to be overcome of industrial society. I think that kind of goes along with this, but it's also real. It's saying that if the system doesn't get what it wants, that scarcity will start to become real. And that is kind of the real scarcity and the real lack that our society still contains is that we haven't, we still lack the foundation for justice and equality. You know, even if there's a sort of sense in which material scarcity is fabricated, there's a deeper scarcity still there. Yeah, I actually, if I can make really two really quick points. Um, one is I, I really appreciate sort of this element of uh, Deleuze and Gattari because one of the problems with uh, Lacan is that we have, we, I think we all have this intuitive sense, and it's almost obvious really that the role of um, advertising and mass media and so on does in a sense uh, produce produces desires and needs and so on, right? And so if your if your entire psychoanalysis is centered around the idea of lack, then uh, it, it's I think it becomes more difficult to get to have a more uh, critical stance on that. And so if you can sort of demonstrate in your psychoanalysis that lack is produced socially, that I think that gives you a much better ground to 
to stand on if you want to make that that argument and the, the other just really brief point i was going to make just before i sort of cut off is the um the video earlier and sort of the interconnectedness i think that's a really really good point um it reminds me of how you know you sort of the anti-psychiatrist movement the anti uh sort of prison prison abolition movement both of them sort of pointed to this common ground where we said look you know you're you're creating the problem um in the first place and then you're saying that you're the only way of of solving it right yeah. presumably it's completely open to like, class chat to say if we followed what i said in the first place then we might not be facing these kinds of global catastrophes you know climate change this virus and so on right so you've sort of set up this position which enables it and then once it comes sort of strode in and said ah only the state can solve this now right yeah and i think that's where i start to criticize maybe this is just a little bit too like contemporary like people who are on the internet or wherever they may be saying that coronavirus and this entire catastrophe is coming from outside from outside our infrastructure from outside global capitalism when in reality i think it's it's emanating from it as much as anything else uh, particularly because of what you were just talking about because of the nature of how we organize ourselves i've been thinking a lot about two things about the section in discipline and punish where foucault describes kind of the proliferation of the plague town and how these networks of dwellings and how we live can be delineated in kind of a, a myriad of ways. And Deleuze's interpretation of Foucault as kind of a cartographer, as, a, as, a, as almost kind of a critical urban planner. And I, I think it's important when we look at kind of crises to, instead of viewing them as, as things that stand outside of and challenge the system itself, but maybe rather that the challenge exists within. So let's end with a reading of one paragraph. It says, perhaps a little more needs to be said about the Guarani sages' concept of the one. So here they're talking about the distinction between the one as conceived of by the South American Indian societies and the one as conceived by Heraclitus and early Western thinkers. What does the term embrace? The favorite themes of contemporary Guarani thought are the same ones that disturbed more than four centuries ago those who were called Karai prophets. Why is the world evil? What can we do to escape the evil? These are the questions that the generations of those Indians have asked themselves over and over again. And I'll just kind of skip to the end. And what makes it possible to conceive of the one? In one way or another, its presence, whether hated or desired, must be visible. And that's why I believe one can make out, and here it is, beneath the metaphysical proposition that equates evil with the one, another more secret equation of a political nature, which says that the one is the state. And it kind of goes on from there. And the last sentence being, what conditions must obtain in order to conceive of the one as the good? And I was curious uh, because I was talking with a friend of mine. Uh, we, we asked each other, like, hey, can you actually read off of any given political system or any given set of metaphysics the nature of political thought in that system? Does the way that the, the South American Indians that Clusters is looking at and their conception of the one in the sort of idealist sense somehow bear a connection to the way that Western societies have thought about the one from Heraclitus through Neoplatonism and, and so forth? Um, I'm curious if anybody has any any sort of insight into that um, it's, it's pretty observable so pretty frequently you actually observe things like this in anthropology like a society will undergo a shift where they become like from egalitarian to patriarchal where and then you can observe that in their mythic structures they have like figures of like the the mother goddess 
is actually the more patriarchal version because when you think of women as being associated with um, agricultural labor, then that usually reflects men are telling them to do that. I, I can totally get on board with this having an anthropological background. Here's a kind of controversial claim that I extrapolated from clusters and just kind of made it my own, or I just basically formulated it as a question. I said, is it possible that power to court, power with no other qualification, originated from what we call the Prophetic Speech Act? So that maybe the, you know, the efficient cause or maybe even the sufficient condition of the instantiation of state power is at one point, as you said, this transformation of the myth. It's an interesting idea. I definitely, I think I took issue with the way he frames it, though, because it, it does seem to be, and not to be pedantic, but it kind of seems like a little bit of a language game at the end there where he's like, oh, this one and the one they're referring to, and then the one is the state. And so could this one that we conceive of as good be the state slash our God? Are we worshiping this idea of a thing that should take care of us when really it doesn't take care of it? It seems a very, very easy kind of like syllogism to make. It's and kind it's of funny because the example, the example that he uses you know, I know he's trying to say it's a double-edged sword, but I, I just, I don't know if I, not to be a stick in the mud, but I don't know if I completely, I liked when he was talking about the one is evil, but I don't know if I completely buy what I think I'm reading, which is this kind of like, it, it, I don't know, a classical, I don't know, leftist approach to the state and religion, to kind of seeing it as, you know, power, basically to seeing the role of religion as an originary moment of coercion, which I think there's a lot sociologically to talk about that but i think there's just so much more there and there's so much more like you said to prophetic speech acts and the how that relates to just us as humans that it's i don't know if it's quite so simple plus it's also yeah. inherently kind of it's like a discussing you know theology itself it's not really provable it almost feels like civilization and its discontents where freud is just kind of like just making up different interesting thought experiments but i, I don't know where do we where do we go with that because you can't yeah. really nail it down. I think as a younger student, I would have been very attracted to that idea and probably locked locked into it for a semester or two. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now that I look at it, I, I wonder if we even exist in a society today where these kind of distinctions can be read off from quote unquote culture. I mean, even those no, cultures yeah. who haven't been contacted by state civilizations, do they buy into this distinction themselves? Or could we go to one of the South American Indians who have limited contact with the West today and, and say, hey, you guys still believe in this one as the evil thing? Like, I don't even... Yeah, but isn't this, uh, isn't this same uh, concept of the one or the concept of the one that uh, Kloster presupposes that is... Uh, in ideas of most of the primitive societies, also an ethnocentric idea. I mean, um, just going back to the topic that we started with, isn't this presupposition that all societies or all these primitive societies also have a concept of the one mm. an ethnocentric idea? Yeah. And just to finish off and maybe round it up, what I'm trying to say, because I think I wasn't so clear, maybe he's just try making the same mistake that he uh, highlights in the first passages, if you remember about statements about primitive societies lacking the state, it being a reductionist or a presupposing statement, maybe he's doing the same thing now. That's a good point. Yeah, my uh, devil's advocate rebuttal would be, okay, that might be the case. Maybe he got all the fine-grained details wrong, but like from a coarse-grained perspective, when you ask about, hey, what are your metaphysics, whether we're asking Heraclitus or whether we're asking the... <laughs> the prophets of the South American Indians, they, they clearly, you know, 
come down on a very different side than than Heraclitus does. I mean, yeah, I could right. just be I mean, belaboring yeah. the point, but uh, you know, it even if we get settled on the idea, like yeah, Colossus probably got it wrong. I, it, it's still like a splinter in me. A little. Uh, well, no, I just think that it's uh, this uh, whole raveling about the one is just a way to illustrate one of his basic points, and that point is that these these primitive societies essentially want to distance themselves from the state. They want to get themselves as far away from that this state as possible, right? And this is what he's been talking about the whole essay. And maybe this is just a, a stylistic tool to highlight something again. I, I don't know. But, um, I think this is a recurring point with him, essentially, essentially that they're resisting the state. I think if I can just add my 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 problem with this passage, and actually I really I really enjoyed reading this uh, this essay, and I found it really really interesting and thought provoking. But in this passage in particular, where it's so vital that he really sort of you know nails the landing on this one, um, this uh, entire paragraph um, is essentially him going sort of sort of gesturing and going. Could it be? Could it be this? Gestures a bit more and sort of says, ah, but if it is this, could it not also lead to the conclusion that... And he goes on and on. But of course, unless he's able to really substantiate the initial, what he calls an intuition, it ends up being a, a very difficult line of reasoning to uh, to sustain, I think. Um, because it's, it's just a sort of, could this be... No, could the reason be this? And yeah, it could be. But yeah. you know, um, you need to do. I, I, I need more than that to believe that actually these huge movements of peoples across of Latin, you know, Central and Southern America are down to some kind of shared pseudo anarchistic resistance to a proto state. I think the question is more interestingly posed in an inward direction of just asking: Could our understanding that of the, the very question, why didn't certain societies lead to the states that we identify as a proper form of civilization? Just asking inwardly, could it be possible that there are societies that choose not to go in that direction or that mitigate against that and you know choose a different kind of life orientation? That's a completely valid yeah. question to me. But it yeah, does, really inter- yeah, this, good point. Th- this, this paragraph, to me, it almost brings up the idea, it reminds me of Terry does, uh, he talks about the example and how this is an act. I don't think it's ornamental to his thesis. He's using, it's like the tyranny of the example in a sense, because you're kind of, you're saying this is just an example, but then you extrapolate actually your whole, you know, ideology or your whole epistemology yeah. from that faulty yeah. example. So there's something about, like, I really, I agree. I totally benefited from the essay. There's so much food for thought. You know, all this stuff is very interesting, but I do think there's a, there's a flaw in that. Not only are the, I think a more radical approach would be to, look at the kind of multiplicities of phenomenologies that these cultures experience, like from that, this is, you know, the pluriversal approach that there's all these different subjugated knowledges, maybe in the Foucauldian sense of that, that have these different approaches to how they conceive of themselves and their relationship to everything he brings up, work, the state, uh, leisure, you know, justice and goodness and evil, then trying to paint this very broad brush. And I think, yeah, do a disservice to his own, point here which is much more about i think that introspective question of what as a discipline are we looking at the wrong things which i think is a valid question at the beginning when he says we're looking for lacks we're saying it lacks a market it lacks this it lacks a state when really we should be asking could these actually be positive social formations that became the way they yeah. did yeah. on purpose and in order to adapt to their circumstances which in which case maybe they're just as valid as any other that's great i love and that that's, part. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
does I Trump think make makes the uh, the rejection of the Foucauldian power analysis so interesting with him is that he both doesn't want to have sort of this um, neutral, I guess what's the word used to describe uh, Foucault's analysis of the relationship between power and knowledge, that like neutral understanding of the universality of power and how it operates in different modalities. Um, but he also wants to uproot kind of even going as far back as like Levi Strauss. He wants to uproot all of our understandings of uh of socio-political and industrial development. So that's why I think he he kind of carves out an interesting piece of theoretical land for himself. Yeah, and I think what's, what's also interesting is that um, although, you know, I read a quote out from that other um, series of interviews with him where he, you know, he seems pretty, you know, opposed to what, what Foucault is saying about power. It's interesting to me, and maybe this is me sort of being a bit sort of facetious about it, but um, even here, you know, his conclusion about, um, you know, the profits and so on, um, even here, his conclusion is essentially that power originates through a certain form of discourse, right? Um, uh, it's through yeah. his prophetic discourse. That's Boom. just for him. Habermasian. <laughs> Right, so he's opposed to Foucault's idea that you know power is sort of is micro politics of power and so on and discourse and knowledge, but even on his account, at least in this essay, it's it's it still originates through a certain form of discourse. All right, folks. Well, here's what I'm going to do. Um, maybe do is offer some final thoughts on the text, and then we'll wrap it up well, so that we can have just put a, a factory finish on the recording. And then uh, people are certainly welcome to stay around to continue talking, asking questions, and that sort of thing. Um, I'm going to break off. But if you don't mind, I'd like to offer my final thought, and then we'll other people go, and then we'll finish. Sound good? Yep. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I was able to take away from this discussion was a, a sort of simplified methodology about how not to be an ethnocentricist when it comes to anthropology or even philosophy. And that is um, maybe when we look, like no matter how good, you know, the, the question was posed that there's going to be like some sort of carryover from any sort of ethnocentrist view when we try to work our way out of et ethnocentrism, like the sort of the residue of our ethnocentric attitude will somehow appear even in our more enlightened view. But perhaps uh, a way to sort of offset or remedy that is uh, think about clusters and think about Deleuze and Gattari and look for anywhere in our way of thinking about cultures and politics uh, of the other. Um, where do we see or presuppose lack? And in what ways does that appear? And and then how can we reformulate that, like like we're talking about that, to see the choices and movements that any society makes it, as a kind of positive movement? I, I don't really have anything else to add other than that I thought it was a, a really interesting uh, piece. Uh, I think you're right, especially it makes you rethink, you know, uh, it gives you sort of awareness of sort of ethnocentrism um, within anthropology and sort of philosophy and political theory in particular. Um, one thing which struck me towards the end is um, in our discussion of sort of the origins of power. Um, it might be, it might at some at some stage be worth us uh, having a look at his, uh, I think it's the genealogy of violence, um, because it sounds like he does develop a slightly different answer to the question yeah. of, you know, uh, given the outline here, how is it that states really do arise? Um, but yeah, broadly, I thought it was a really, really interesting exercise, I guess. And uh, there's there certain points we can disagree with him on, but um, I think for me, it's it's made me rethink, in some sense, the relationship between economics, uh, politics, and power. Great.
Anybody else want to get a final thought in? Go ahead, Andrew. It's pretty insightful, I'd say. More, more, it's more insightful than... Uh, <laughs> I definitely found out more things than I did, than the things I disagree with. But I think that coming from a more philosophical perspective, this was also an interesting read. But I think that Clash uh, may have used some more conceptual philosophy to describe the emergence of the state. Maybe this would have helped them you know, with conceptualizing this whole thing, its emergence, etc. And not just saying, yeah, this could happen this way or the other way, I don't really know. Well, great. Well, if that's it, I, I think this was a really successful reading group. I really thank everybody for participating and uh, hope to see you guys tomorrow. Yep, see you. Cheers, thanks. All right, take care. Great. All right.